Well, thank you. Again, it is a, a pleasure to be with you all, and thank you for coming back for this special session today. Romans chapter 9, we might entitle this, God's Sovereignty in Salvation. It would certainly be difficult to find an issue that arises more, arouses more heat in discussion than this subject, even debate and heated debate, than this subject of God's sovereignty in salvation. And I'm not quite sure whether I should commend Ryan for his courage in doing this <laughs> or suggest that maybe he wimped out and had me do it. <laughs> So that if somebody is angry and wants to shoot the messenger, his, his children won't be fatherless. <laughs> but that this is a, an area of doctrine that is often disputed among Christians should not leave you to believe. Therefore, it's an unimportant area of doctrine. Back in the time of the Reformation... The reformer Martin Luther made that point to the Roman Catholic scholar Erasmus. Erasmus had written his book entitled The Freedom of the Will. And Martin Luther responded with another book entitled The Bondage of the Will. And for all of the ugly things that he had to say to Erasmus in that book, he did commend Erasmus for at least dealing with root issues. Here's the, the issue that demonstrates whether or not salvation is by grace. And we'll see that Luther's insight in that regard was something that evidently he learned from the Apostle Paul, because Paul's point here throughout the chapter, and we will see this here and there again as we go through, his point here is that this is the doctrine that establishes once and for all that salvation is by grace and not by works. And certainly no passage in the scriptures given over to this to dealing with it more pointedly or more at length than Romans chapter 9. Now the question at issue that we're going to be dealing with throughout this chapter is simply this. In our salvation, does the critical decision rest with us or does it rest with God? Now humbling as it is for us to learn that our salvation was ultimately not a decision that we made, but a decision that God made, humbling as that is, I would argue that it's nonetheless a truth that every Christian already knows, and in fact, every Christian instinctively knows this. And I say that for two reasons. Number one, we instinctively give thanks to God for saving us. No Christian ever bows his head and says, I want to thank myself now for having the good sense of repenting. Instinctively, we know better than that, that all of the thanks goes to God. And the second reason I know that this is something that instinctively every Christian already knows is that every Christian also prays to God that he will save others. We never bow our heads in prayer and say, Lord, <clears throat> my brother needs to be saved I know you can't do any more than you did. You're off the hook. I know you've done what you can do, Father. I know the Son has done what he can do. The Spirit's done what he, what he can do. It's up to him, and I hope he has the good sense to see through to believing. None of us prays like that. But rather, instinctively, when we bow to pray, we go to God 
with the instinctive assumption that our brother will stay lost until God moves in mercy. And so instinctively we go to God and we'll say, God, move his heart. Save him. And implicitly we are acknowledging that the critical move comes from God's side and not ours. Now, many have talked the other way and preached the other way. That all of this is up to you and not up to God. But when it comes to praying, we know better. And so, when we come to this doctrine, we come to something that almost inevitably, when we start opening it up, the penny drops at some point along the way in the exposition. We say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Are you saying that God is the one who determines who will be saved? And we say that, and immediately we feel like we've been stripped of some of our dignity. We feel a little bit less self-sufficient. And so this doctrine has become something that's almost absolutely intolerable in Christendom today. And almost the entire Christian world says, no, the decision lies with you and it is not God's. And any notion that would put the saving work in, back in God's hands is instinctively or, or inevitably called something that is unfair. Well, as I mentioned, there's nowhere in the Bible that gives a greater exposition of this theme than Romans chapter 9. We've read through it, and all we're going to do now is walk back through it at a slower pace, trying to unpack the Apostle Paul's argument. Paul in this passage has been, in the context, has been expounding the nature of justification and all of its attending blessings. He began, as many of you will know, in Romans chapters 1 through 3, expounding the need for justification. The the need for justification lies simply in the fact that all men are sinners. Not all men have had equal uh, degree of revelation from God, but all men are sinners. All men have rebelled against what they have heard from God, whether it be through what we call natural revelation or through special revelation in the Scriptures. Every one of us, every last one of us, has rebelled against what we know to be right. And so he's established then the universal need of justification. This is true of Jews who have received the word from God in a special way. This is true of the Gentiles who have not had it. But he concludes that all are under sin. And then in the last part of Romans chapter 3 and all the way through the end of Romans chapter 8, Paul is dealing with the method of justification. And he tells us that justification comes not by works, but by grace. And it comes to us through faith. And he expounds that with illustrations from Abraham and from David and so on. And he's established this point then that justification comes not by works, but by faith alone. Now at this point, what is becoming painfully clear for the Apostle Paul is that, particularly we get to chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, but he expresses this again in chapter 10 and verse 1. What's painfully clear to him now is that Israel has begun to take a back seat in the divine program. And what's puzzling to him about that is that God has made some marvelous promises to Israel. And now Paul is saying God has made marvelous promises to us Gentiles as well. But what has happened to those 
promises to Israel. And so he's lamenting in verses 1 through 3 that there are so many in Israel who are still unsaved. How can that be? God has made some wonderful promises, and at the beginning of this Christian enterprise, the church was a Jewish church. But now very quickly, in the matter of a couple of decades, the situation has been reversed. And Israel has become to take the back seat, and this is dominantly now a Gentile affair. What's happened to those promises to Israel? Or as he says in verse 6, has God's word failed? And Paul explains then in the following verses that the answer to the problem is found in the divine initiative. God is not dependent upon Israel for the fulfillment of his promises. But God himself will work in and in behalf of his, of his people and bring them in faith to their promised blessings. And that's important then for Gentiles as well. Paul has just expressed in the end of verse of chapter 8, as you know, his firm confidence in God's decree Uh, salvation. But if Israel has failed in her promises, what good are these promises to us? And it seems that some kind of considerations like this are what brings Paul to this exposition in chapters 9 through 11. And so here he expounds at some length this great truth that God's mercy is in no way dependent upon the recipient of that mercy, but God's saving uh, grace depends for its efficacy only on God himself. And so to take the bigger picture again, Israel, by God's sovereign electing grace, will again be brought into her covenanted promises, and so also God's promises to us. Do not depend upon us, but on God who made the promise and will certainly bring them to fruition. All right, that's the larger picture. Now, notice Paul's first argument in verses 6 through 9, and he grounds his argument in God's distinguishing grace and his electing purpose. Verse 6, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac your seed shall be called. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Now notice, first of all, verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. His argument is simple, that God's word has not failed. He has never made the promise that every descendant of Abraham will be saved, but there's a narrowing focus. Not all Israel, or not all that are from Israel are Israel. There's a narrowing focus. There's what we find in the scriptures elsewhere, this remnant theology. That there is within Israel a believing remnant that will be brought, and there's this narrowing focus, and God's purpose is carried out then, by a representative sampling within Israel, a select number whom he has brought to faith. God's purpose to save is carried out not by anything in us, but by his own electing purpose. And then he gives the illustration. And what he illustrates here now for the next several verses is that this principle of God's distinguishing grace and his electing purpose and narrowing focus is something that's written all over the face of Genesis. Verse 7, God said to Abram, In Isaac your seed shall be called, not Ishmael, 
In Isaac, your seed shall be called. Not in the sons of Keturah. In Isaac, your seed shall be called. The son of Abraham and Sarah. In other words, Paul is simply saying here, just read Genesis. Just read the scriptures and you see God's distinguishing purpose has been the factor in deciding who is saved and who receives the blessing since the very beginning. It is in Isaac, not Ishmael. Now, you might ask the question at this point, why was it Isaac who received the blessing and not Ishmael? Answer? What is it? God said Isaac. That's why. It's easy, isn't it? God said in Isaac, your seed shall be called. He is the one who will receive the blessing. God said otherwise. He would have said, no, it's, it's not the, the, the son of Hagar. It's not the son of any of the sons of Keturah. Sarah will have a son. And because God has said Isaac and not anyone else, because he selected Isaac, then the blessing comes accordingly. His point simply is just read through the narrative and you see God's distinguishing choice is what makes the difference. Now that's clear, and that's actually persuasive enough, and in a way we don't need anything else. As Paul says here in so many words, it just lies on the face of Genesis. But you can just hear someone objecting at this point. Now wait a minute. Ishmael was the son of an Egyptian woman. That's the difference. There's something in the person after all. That's what made the difference. And so, to press this matter, that the reception of grace depends not on anything in the person himself, Paul gives another illustration, again, which simply lies on the face of Genesis, verses 10 through 13. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And here the argument runs something like this. It was Jacob who was chosen and not Esau. What difference do we find between these two men? They're both sons of Isaac. They're both sons of the same mother. And in fact, they're twins. And in fact, you would think that it would be Esau who would be chosen because technically speaking, although they're twins, he's the older. But no, in fact, in fact, it is Jacob who receives the blessing. Let's ask the question again. Why was it Jacob who received the blessing and not Esau? God said so. That's why. That's the whole point that he's pointing out here, and it's really not difficult. He says, just read Genesis. You see that? God said Jacob and not Esau. They were brothers. They were twins. There's no difference in them. The only difference between them is the difference that God had made. Before either of them were born, before they'd ever behaved or misbehaved, God said the older shall serve the younger. And this God decreed, verse 11, in order that, with this purpose, that his electing purpose would stand. 
In other words, the distinction between Jacob and Esau here is a distinction which God made, independent of anything about Jacob or Esau themselves. And in verses 11 and 12, what the apostle does here is denies that there's any human distinction that plays any role in God's choice of who will receive the blessing. And what he affirms here is that all of it is from God. Notice at the end of it, well, verses 11 and 12, though they were not yet born and done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might stand, not because of works, but of, but, but, because of his call. She was told, the older will serve the young. That is, God's saving purpose is free from any human influence. God made this choice, and he made this choice so that his purpose of election would stand. Not birth, not behavior, but before the birth of them and before any consideration of their merits. It was a choice that God had made. Jacob, not Esau. Now, the idea which dominates today is something like man is in a neutral position. God wants him. The devil wants him. And he's hanging between the two. You know, which way am I going to decide here? And it's up to him. In fact, when I was in undergraduate school, Christian college, the vice president of the University was preaching in a chapel one time, and I remember his pointing this out, and he said that referred to the traditional doctrine of election that the reformers had preached and all of that. And he said, that presents election like a stuffed ballot box. He says, here's the doctrine of election. Here's, here's what the Bible means with the doctrine of election. God casts a vote for you, the devil casts a vote for you, and you cast the deciding vote. Now, can you see here how the Apostle Paul utterly rejects that kind of thinking. That is utterly contrary to what the Apostle Paul is saying here. The only deciding factor Paul is insisting here was God. He made a choice. Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. It was a right that God has exercised, a prerogative of his, in determining who would receive the blessing. The choice was made completely independent of any considerations of the merits of anyone involved. It is God's free, or what we call his sovereign choice. The choice, then, in salvation belongs to God and to God alone. I talked to a preacher once who said that he was attending, not preaching, but attending a meeting in a church where another evangelist was preaching. And at the end of the service, the pastor got up to lead an, an altar call, <clears throat> and it was an extended altar call. And the pastor then leading that made this statement, appealing to the people to be saved. He says, God the Father has done all that he can do. God the Son has done all that he can do. God the Spirit has done all that he can do. It's up to you now. And then he said, to make matters worse, after it was all over, he said, the pastor recognized me in the audience and he said he called on me to pray. He said, I thought to myself, what do I say? He's just got through telling us that God's done all he can do. What do I ask for? (laughs) 
And notice again in verses 11 and 12 what Paul says about God's purpose in all of this. Though they were not yet born and done nothing, neither good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger. That is, God has set out to establish that salvation is indeed by grace. It is his doing. And at the bottom of it all, and this is a point Paul makes in these verses and through the whole chapter, at the bottom of, the, of it all, it is this doctrine that establishes once and for all that salvation is indeed by grace and not by works. Because if at the beginning of it all, it is God who decides who receives his blessing. Well, then we've established once and for all that salvation is indeed by grace. All right, this is getting heavy. Paul, are you saying that God determines who will be saved? We don't. It's exactly what he is saying. And he cites Moses and the book of Genesis as proof. And now, in verse 13, he quotes the prophet Malachi. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, Esau I have hated. This principle is evident all through Israel's history from Abraham on. And what explains that the blessing was given to Jacob and not to Esau? Answer, God loved Jacob. He hated Esau. That's what the text says. Now, I know how that language makes you feel nervous. I remember, and this is a great model for us, I remember sitting in a congregation in a small church in the south one time, listening to a pastor. He'd been preaching through the book of Romans, and he came to this passage He was not a highly educated man, but he was a man who was faithful to the word and wanted to be faithful. And he came to verse 13 and read it. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And he asked the congregation rhetorically, now what does that mean, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated? I'll tell you what it means, he says. It means Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. That's profound, isn't it? And we ought to have that kind of faith that will follow the, walk down any path that the Bible marks out for us. Now, many have argued here in verse 13 that hate does not really mean hate, antipathy, but it means something like to love less. Now, I'm not sure. That may well be true. But at the end of it all, it makes a little difference, doesn't it? We still have God preferring one over another. God choosing one over another. And truth be told, I don't think we have to understand this word hate as what what we call positive hatred. I think it's more like judicial hatred. For example, when Jesus tells us we must hate our mother and father, he clearly is not saying we must have antipathy in our heart toward our parents. That would contradict the commandment to honor your father and mother. But what he is asking, is commanding us to do is make a decision, a judicial decision that we refuse to give our ultimate loyalty to our parents. Our ultimate loyalty belongs to Christ. And in that sense, hate 
your mother and father. But even after we've said all of that, we've still not changed much here, have we? Because we still have God choosing one over the other. Jacob have I loved, Esau I've hated. Now, one more thing on verse 13. If that is a difficult verse for you to swallow, maybe this will help. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Which half of that statement is difficult for you? Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And if we're reading this biblically, it would be very easy for us to understand how God and why God would hate Esau, wouldn't it? The difficulty in this verse is how in the world does God love Jacob? There's only one answer you can give. Because he said he would. This was his determination. It didn't rest in any respect whatsoever on Jacob. This is a choice that came from God's side. Now, what's the objection that comes to mind once we've come this far? Think about it. God is the one who determines who will be saved. God makes this choice ultimately and not we. The objection that immediately comes to mind is, that's not fair. Notice verse 14. What shall we say then? That God is not fair? Is there injustice with God? It's precisely the objection that the Apostle Paul anticipates. Now before I go anywhere else, let me point this out. It's sort of a backdoor way into arguing the doctrine of predestination. When you talk to someone and they want to work out all of this fairness problem, simply ask them, all right, your problem with my doctrine of election is that it makes it unfair for God, right? Yeah, that's the problem, he'll say. And your doctrine of election, you ask me, your doctrine of election has that all worked out. There's no problem with the fairness, right? Yeah, that's right. Take them to verse 14. Say, now whatever else is true, I already know that your doctrine is not the same as Paul's. Because Paul's doctrine of predestination anticipated this objection. And if your doctrine of election doesn't have built into it that problem, whatever else is true, you can be sure it's not Pauline doctrine. So Paul's doctrine anticipates this objection. What shall we say then, that God is not fair? But notice how Paul answers the question. He doesn't answer by backing up. Oh, no, 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 you misunderstand me. I'm not saying all that. Whoa. He doesn't back up at all. No, he pushes the point. Verse 15, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That is to say, God is under obligation to no one. How and when and on whom He shows mercy is a choice that belongs to him. I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. There is no man or woman anywhere that can lay claim to God's favor. 
There is no man or woman anywhere who can obligate God in any way. All of us are undeserving. Every last one of us deserves only God's wrath. And if God determined to save only one person in the entire history of the whole world, that would show him to be gracious, not unfair to anyone. And if there's any verse in the Bible that puts the lie to the doctrine of Free will salvation, it is verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. Now, what we're taught virtually everywhere in Christendom today, now I say virtually everywhere. When I started the ministry 30 years ago, we were such a tiny minority that believed this, but now, Man, we're growing like crazy. And I always like to tell people we're growing because we don't fight fair. We use our Bibles. (laughs) But still, in the larger picture of of things, virtually everywhere in Christendom, the teaching is it's entirely your decision. That's the critical move. It's a move that you make. You make, and I I really don't know how you can hold that and even read verse 16. It is not of him who wills, or of him who runs, literally, or exerts himself in any way. It is of God who shows mercy. Now, do you feel like Paul has nailed his argument pretty well? I have been accused in the past, in my preaching, of hammering a tack with a sledgehammer. I may do that too much, I don't know, and I'm not claiming that I've done it all perfectly. But at least I have this in my favor, that the Apostle Paul does that on occasion as well. And this is what he's doing here. He's driving his point with a sledgehammer. He's said enough. He's said it plenty. You pointed to passages in the Old Testament. It illustrates it so well and so easily. He's demonstrated it theologically, that God is free to show his mercy on whomever he chooses Ah, but he's not done. Let's, let's do this some more. Verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh. Okay, we got another illustration. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up. I raised you up. Why? That I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, now just think that one through for a minute. I raised you up, and I raised you up for the purpose of showing my power in you. God raises up this wicked king, and God says, I'm going to show something through you. And notice the conclusion Paul draws from that in verse 18. So then, oh, we've heard this before. He has mercy on whomever he wills. Uh Uh-oh. And he hardens whomever he will. Now again, Paul here is simply driving his point with a sledgehammer. And he's simply saying that God is not obligated to anyone, anywhere, on any time. This is his heaven after all. This is his salvation. This is his mercy. And it is his to dispense with it as he pleases. And if God should save one person, or ten people, 
or a hundred people. Or if, as we find, in fact, he saves a great multitude of people whom no man can number, is God somehow under suspicion because he did not save every rebel sinner who hated him? Oh, what kind of thinking is that? And if God determines to take that other lump of humanity and leave them to their own will and their own choices and their own sin or harden them, does that make him wrong? Here's a world full of rebellious sinners who hate God and God sovereignly out of his, the depths of his merciful heart says, I will save a multitude of people despite their insane rebellion against me. And the rest of them, I'll let them have their own choice. And God now is unfair in that? Or is he merciful? Since when is God obligated to show his mercy to anyone? Salvation is his prerogative. If, for example, in the prison system of the entire state of New Mexico... There's one person that the governor determines that he'll commute his sentence. Has he been unfair because he didn't pardon every criminal who ever lived? He's under no obligation to show mercy to anyone. And this is Paul's argument here exactly. Now, let's be careful to notice something about this awful word, harden, in verse 18. He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he will. Let me ask you a question. What did God have to do to harden Pharaoh's heart? Oh, yeah. God didn't have to introduce some new emotion, introduce some new motive into his heart that wasn't already there. What did God have to do to harden Pharaoh? Answer? Nothing. Just left him to himself. What would God have had to do to harden your heart? Nothing. Just leave you to yourself. And that's why it is so awful in Romans chapter 1. And Paul tells us God gave them over. Have it your way. It is the very worst thing that God could ever do to us. Have it your way. And this is the point exactly that is overlooked in all the objections. The point is not that all of humanity and at the goodness of its heart is clamoring after God, is saying, nope, 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 I know you want to be saved, but I'm not going to let you. But rather, it is a world full of Christ rejectors and God haters. And despite their rebellion, God says, I'll save some for my own glory's sake. And so you see, if God leaves them alone, It is really just leaving them to their own choice. At least in a moment of humility, can't we admit that we're glad 
that God's choice of me did not depend on my choice of him. Oh, the objections still come, and Paul's not going to let it go. So verse 19 continues. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? That is, if it's of God and God only, how can I be blamed if I'm the one lost? God didn't choose me. That's a good good thing for us that Paul took up this objection too, isn't it? Because we've heard that. How can I be to blame then if it's God that didn't choose me? Now, on one level, the answer could be very serious. I'm sorry, very simple. And that is simply that he blames you because it was your choice. You just got what you chose. But that's not what Paul takes here. He'll deal with that a little bit later. We'll see. But notice how he responds in verses 20 through 22. Let's read the question again. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Answer, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand to glory? Now, what's interesting here is that when this objection comes up, well, how can you blame me then if I'm not chosen? Paul, again, doesn't back up, but rather he pushes the point. Who are you? Who are you to dictate to God what is right or wrong? You've got this backwards. You're the sinner. And you're going to sit there and tell God what is right and what is wrong and what's just and unjust? You see how he doesn't back up? He pushes the point even further. If God will take a lump of fallen, rebellious humanity and like a potter with a lump of clay, take that lump of fallen, rebellious humanity and out of part of it, make people who are, or staying with the illustration, make vessels out of this clay for honorable use and then take out of that same lump of fallen humanity, leave them to their own choices and dishonorable use. What's unfair about that? Who is there that can call God into question on that score? Again, that is to say, you've got it all backwards. God will not be brought before your bar of justice. He will not be called into question. You are entirely out of line. Now, do you see how the question all rests here, ultimately? This answer to the problem of so-called problem of injustice and divine election is not found in your idea of what God ought and ought not to do. The answer to this so-called problem of election rests finally in the distance between the creator and the creature. He is the potter. We are the clay. 
And for us to dictate standards of right and wrong to him would be as absurd as an ashtray rebelling against the potter, saying, I don't want to be an ashtray. I want to be a flower pot. I want to be a nice vase. That's just absurd. And Paul is saying here, in effect, you can kick and spit and fuss against this all you like, but make no mistake, you are the sinner. And in this question of salvation, you have no rights. God has rights, and he is free to do as he pleases. Well, Paul is still not done. Verses 25 through 29, we'll hurry through here. He just cites three passages from the prophets regarding this remnant theology, God's sovereign grace saving from among Israel. And then moving along to verse Verses 30 and following. The question still remains, who then is to blame for your unbelief? Now that was the question that was raised in verse 19. Paul answers it sort of. But now finally in verses 30 to 33, he gets around to answering it precisely. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, that who, did not, who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Well, because God didn't elect them. That's why. That's not what it says, is it? Why is it Israel didn't obtain it? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now here was the perfect opportunity for the Apostle Paul to lay the blame on God as the caricatures of this doctrine often do. Why why weren't they saved? Well, because God hadn't chosen them. But that is not what he says. What he says very precisely is, they are not saved because they don't want to. They wouldn't pursue it by faith. They pursued it as though, or by works, as though they had some self-sufficiency of their own. They tried pursuing it on their own terms as though they had rights. And the blame for their lostness lies squarely with them. That is to say, if you are not saved, it's your fault. If you're not saved, why are you not saved? Have you not had opportunity? Have you not heard the gospel? Doesn't God, as we are told in chapter 10, verse 21... Position himself open to the sinner. All day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This is God's position all through the scriptures. Now, I have to admit, this is beneath God. This is beneath his dignity to stand there like a beggar. Will you come? Will you come? Will you come? But that's precisely what he does. And part of his glory is to reveal this about himself, that he positions himself before the sinner like this. Will you come? And if you come, I will have you. 
fact of the matter is, the whole world unanimously says, no, we won't have you. Now, if you did not believe after an invitation like that, there's only one person to blame, and that's you. It has been just a heart-wrenching kind of experience to see people who have grown up in the church reject Christ and then say an excuse, well, God didn't choose me. The Apostle Paul says here in effect, the whole explanation for your lostness is very simply, you don't want to come to Christ. You are invited And in your heart of hearts, you don't want him. Now, if God passes by you and leaves you in your sin, he will leave you simply to what you have chosen. And no man or woman in hell will ever be able to point an accusing finger to God and blame him. In a word, if you escape God's wrath, you will have only God to thank for it. He has shown mercy. But if you perish, you will have only yourself to blame. You will have got what you willingly chose. Well, this is Paul's argument in this chapter. Let's take just a couple of minutes and reflect back on it. What should be our response to this doctrine. That is, as believers, what should be our response? Here we come to the scriptures and we learn, explicitly we are taught what we intuitively know anyway, that God is the one who determines who will be saved. What should be our response? Well, first, of course, this doctrine and understanding this doctrine ought to work in us New levels of humility. Here we learn that our standing before God is determined solely by his mercy. His initiative. If he had left me to myself, I would have perished. I'd still be in my sins. And brothers and sisters, if there's anything that ought to take us down a few pegs, it is a recognition of this. I am what I am by the grace of God. The only difference, the only difference between me and Judas Iscariot is a difference that God made. We have no room for self-congratulation. And God wants us to know that he will not share the credit in salvation with anyone. And that brings us to our point our response ought to be one of worship. Worship. An understanding of this doctrine ought to revolutionize our devotional life. Did you know that if you are saved, it is only because God has given you a favor that he is withheld from others? 
Not because you were seen as someone who was trying so to make his way to God and God saw, well, he's doing so well, I'll bring him. No. If you are saved, it's because God has given you a favor that he has withheld from others. If you are saved, it is due to God's pleasure and nothing else. Before you were born, God looked ahead and he saw you in your rebellion. and He saw you in your natural antipathy to him. Like all others, children of wrath, children of disobedience, determined to go the wrong way. And despite your choice, he stuffed the ballot box. And that's your only hope. I love to exhort our people to work your way. This is great for a devotional exercise for you. Work your way back through the questions. Why am I saved? Oh, that's easy. I'm saved because I believed. That's right. That's right. Why did you believe? Or, why do you believe and not anyone else, and so many of the others did not? Are you less affected by sin? Why did you believe? Answer, God called me. All right? Why am I saved? Because I believe. Why did I believe? Because God called me. Next question, why did God call you? There's no answer to that except to say, Because long ago, he chose me. Push it back further. Why did God choose me? The only answer we're given to that in the Bible is the answer Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 11. Because it seemed good to him to do it. That's why he chose you. Push it back one more level. Why did it seem good to him to choose me? See there, the door of revelation is closed. We're not told. And there, we learn to bow. At that point, we learn to ascribe all of the glory and salvation to God alone. And that is precisely the point. Verse 23, he did all of this to make known his glory. God is out, first and foremost, above all other consideration, God is out to honor himself. And he will not share the credit in salvation with anyone. And he has established this just so that we will know that all of the glory goes to him. Please understand, this is not some party line that we take so that we can triumph over those who don't know it. As though somehow we were better. This doctrine is designed simply to make us kneel and to make us bow before God and give honor to him as the God of mercy. And this great, warm, and wonderful truth is revealed simply in order to make us worshipers. Or as I like to say, this is revealed to us in order to make us sing not only Deo Gloria, but solely Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory.
mind, every day of our lives ought to be marked by just a profound sense of thanksgiving to God. For reasons not revealed to us, he saw fit to save the likes of us. Amen.